0: Hey everyone. welcome back to that engineering podcast, the podcast where we discuss developing topics in STEM fields. I'm Alex, I'm Travis and I'm Paula. As you all may know, humans have made it to the moon and back, to Pluto and beyond, and now we set our sights on to Mars. So what does the future of space exploration have in store for humanity?
1: The future of space exploration is pretty wide, but I gotta say the like if we're talking about recent news, It's definitely leaping forward as China just landed their new rover on the moon. It's actually growing seeds up there, which I find pretty neat because that makes it the first biological uh, tests or, well, experiments in general to actually happen on the moon.
2: And adding on to that, I heard that they actually planted those seeds on the dark side of the moon, which is something very new. Can you maybe tell us a little bit more about that? Well,
1: in general, it's just that's the first time we've ever had a rover actually make it to the dark side of the moon. And uh, they were growing cotton just as a preliminary experiment to see, like, you know, future plans of seeing if they can eventually harvest potatoes and such due to the low nutritional requirements in general just for, you know, growing food in space.
0: So how did they grow the plants on the dark side of the moon? with There's minimal sunlight on that side, obviously, the dark side of the moon. So how did they get the right amount of sunlight? Did they have, like, lights that had the right frequencies of light for
1: yeah the seed was entirely encased inside the rover what they did is they were just using solar energy that powered the rover powering lights that were inside the capsule to grow the seed all of the soil and stuff was still transferred from the planet as it was mainly a test for you know gravitational differences on seed germination
2: so you're saying the soil and everything came from earth yeah okay yeah making sure um well that's uh, very interesting um and it going back to what you said a little bit earlier about how it's only just a preliminary test because they are looking more into um planting like potatoes and such
1: yeah that's what I read about because the whole goal is that cotton is smaller right now and the future is generally if you can get like you know because cotton's a pretty tough crop and potatoes are a also really tough crop. So the whole idea is that if the gravity allows you to grow cotton, eventually once you have the resources to set up tests in general, you'll be able to start growing potatoes and just in general being able to have plants that will still grow in an atmosphere that's not Earth's. Well, not even if isolated, just with gravity differences will be a step in just food production in space.
0: Well, yeah, the soil on the moon isn't as nutrient-rich as Earth, so we'd probably have to export all our soil that we'd have to grow the food on to the moon rather than having the soil on Mars, for example, which Mars has some nutrients built in due to their potentially uh, biologically rich ancient past. But the moon has been just a devoid rock uh, with little to no atmosphere and barely any gravity. So we'd have to probably export all our resources to the moon in order to begin
1: growing. That's That's most of the universe at this point. It's all pretty devoid. (laughs) Very true.
2: But then I start to wonder, like, why? Why are we looking into food production on the moon if we don't even, you know, if nothing is exactly colonized up there right now?
0: Well, it's just setting the grounds for the ability to have long-duration missions where we can supply our own food rather than having to rely on food storage for years or months. For example, a few years ago, they... The astronauts on the ISS were able to grow lettuce using aquaponics, so I see the ability for this application for potatoes and cotton to be able to have sustainability on long-duration missions, especially as we head towards Mars.
2: So do you think they're looking uh, more closely into... um, <laughs> i don't know <laughs> you can cut that out
1: do you think they're looking more closely into different types of food production and do you think well wait actually that's not a good cutoff. yeah cut this <laughs> this is your job production team <laughs> you all suck No, and hey, no, yeah, no yeah, i'm just kidding yeah, yeah, yeah. <laughs> i'm lying I'm, I'm lying i love you all
0: well going back to what you may have been wondering like if they can go further than potatoes or con, well, yeah, NASA has been testing with agriculture and with peanuts, leeks, uh, I believe tomatoes at one point even. Mm-hmm. So there's a lot of variety of crops that humans are testing here on Earth in soil conditions similar to those on other planets and the moon for us to even grow such plants.
1: Yeah, and uh, the rover itself was actually just nuclear-powered, and so that's something that's pretty neat that I find because I know we use it a lot, but it's always neat to just kind of see a mobile nuclear-powered vehicle. And
0: Well, there was actually a problem with one of NASA's landers on Mars. It was originally solar-powered, but because there was so much dust in the atmosphere, it actually covered it within a few months, and it only was able to work again once a random dust storm came in and flew, flung all the dust off the solar panels. So from now on, NASA has been using uh, nuclear batteries, as you said, similar to this rover. To power all it.
2: Oh, that answered my question because I was just about to ask why didn't they use um, solar energy rather than nuclear? But yeah, that would make well, sense. They used
1: both for this rover.
2: Right. Well, but
0: they they use solar in transit, but once they get onto the actual planet, the rovers right. themselves have nuclear batteries.
2: Right. All
1: right, but just uh, I heard Alex, you got some other news about space because the rover's good news and all, but we can talk about some more things like SpaceX and things, right?
0: Well, yeah, SpaceX recently has been developing their new prototype for the Starship or the Starhopper, I believe it's called. However, it's used for uh, vertical takeoff and landing, as similar to their Falcon Heavy and Falcon 9, which have been recently been praised for their ability for reusable rocket bodies. And it will be able to carry much larger cargo and have the potential to reduce cargo uh, prices from hundreds of dollars per kilogram to just around 75 dollars per kilogram so i think that's really neat because that'll allow us to ship even more supplies up to the space station or even build structures up there in the future
1: so these are the big cylinder rockets we've seen on video that go up and then land themselves or is this uh different from those ones that i'm thinking of? it's
0: a slightly different design it's not as cylindrical it looks more of like you know how like cartoon rocket ships look where it's like large at the bottom but like comes closer to a tip at the top it looks a lot similar to that okay so So it's also supposed to have a voyage around the moon with a hopeful launch date of 2023 so they're maybe selling tickets now but i think it's already sold out surprisingly by million
1: dollar investors dude if i had a lot of money i'd pay to go to the moon i want to do some just hopping around up there yeah do you think space tourism is going to be popular obviously There's people who pay a lot of money to go to, like, Antarctica and stuff, and that's practically a devoid wasteland. If I can go to the moon and fly, I'm going to be there.
2: (laughs) I actually personally think um, space tourism is about to become a very huge thing because, apart from SpaceX, but another aerospace company, Blue Origin, is also taking part in space tourism. They're really... Uh, making some new steps forward into making that happen within the next few years Um, so but I've heard
0: about Blue Origin what exactly are they doing to like advance space tourism because I know they have a few rockets but I haven't really heard a lot of news about them I've been mostly focused on SpaceX and NASA and like the European Space Agency
2: right okay so Blue Origin, for example, has just um, made their new rocket called New Shepard, which is actually named after Alan Shepard himself. Um, first and this man in is, space. Yep. First man in space. Um, so their base, their focus with this rocket is the, to the moon and Basically, like you said, space, tourism, and research as well. So what this is, it's um, a reusable, supportable rocket system as well. Like And like you mentioned what SpaceX had, it also has vertical takeoff and vertical landing. So everything is it like, well, not everything, but, you know, it can be reusable, which does save a lot of money. Um, and what's cool is on the very top of the um, of the rocket itself is a little capsule where it can hold up to six people six astronauts but the entire thing basically is a huge window and so you could just see everything right like right outside you could see space and um, i mean if
0: you're paying that much to go up into space you better have a good view
2: right (laughs) but um yeah, it is really nice. It is very, very expensive, though. They've actually said that they plan on charging between two hundred thousand dollars to three hundred thousand dollars for a trip to the moon.
0: Yeah, that's as that's as much as like a whole house. Exactly. <laughs> that is crazy.
2: So, although it is pricey, I do think there's a lot of people that would pay the money to go to. I mean, it's the moon. I you mean, know? yeah.
0: Well, obviously, space tourism once it gets popular, will not only just increase innovation for space tourism, but it'll, it'll allow for much safer rockets, it'll allow for much safer transportation. And it'll, it's basically, if you think about it, it's like the airplane of today, how like back then in the nineteen, in the 1800s and 1900s, people were just driving around in cars using horses, but then the airplane came and it was this revolutionary technology, but not, it wasn't until it was used for commercial transportation that it really started to kick off. So I think rocketry is about to break that mold.
1: Oh, definitely, and especially once like with space tourism and with the just surface of a lot of reusable parts, I think it's going to be a lot neater because I've heard a lot of people are worried about just you know fragments and trash that we're leaving in orbit, and with the more just things we're getting reusable to continuously go to space, especially like because I think you said like a hundred thousand to seventy-five earlier for reusable rocket prices, or, uh,
0: it's around yeah, it's a couple hundred, a couple thousand for current. Uh, kilograms to be sent up into space as cargo but they're planning to reduce it to around 75 dollars per kilogram
1: yeah and if you can continuously kind of reduce that like they've done with just airplanes and cars in general i'm looking forward to like you know maybe it's probably towards the end of my life but just seeing like space tourism become commonplace or
0: interplanetary trade maybe once we start colonizing other planets
1: Well, i still think that's a couple lifetimes away yeah potentially
2: well, kind of going back to the new Shepard r- rocket. Um like I said, it will be able to hold people, take people up to the moon and everything, but it also is going to be used for payloads, you know, research. And something very interesting that I did find is so you can go on their website actually and kind of pitch your research idea to them and get them to take your research up into space obviously it's a huge process and all these applications and things you have to go through but they did give a list of all the payloads that um will be taken first during the first launch
0: so is it like a queue for what research can be go right can, can be sent or is it like just scraping the bottom of the barrel
2: <laughs> no 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 um
1: we ran out of experiments to do a long time ago, please.
0: yeah, we need your applications right now.
2: <laughs> no they <laughs> can you take
1: my dog to space?
0: Uh, the Russians already did that
2: oh, uh. I don't okay, I don't think that's I don't think that's what they're doing, but no, no, yeah, but something very interesting actually um, a professor from Purdue, Dr. Stephen Collicott, go boiler payload, yes, go boiler makers. um. <laughs> looks at zero gravity green propellant management technology which i think which came to mind when you brought up um the issue about waste and everything um
1: so is green propellant is that like biofuel or
0: or is it like electric propulsion because i know ion propulsion is a thing that they use now on satellites which is electric way they do right Yeah, Yeah,
2: I did hear about the ion uh, propulsion, although I don't think that's what it is. It it honestly didn't go into much detail. It just gave a little description of what um, the research was about, just kind of scraped the surface. So I'm not 100% sure, but...
1: Yeah, I didn't know we had the ability to do that yet.
0: Yeah, it's on satellites because it doesn't create a lot of thrust or acceleration. So it's just made for small maneuvers, and it doesn't use... It uses a bit of power, but because they have like nuclear—I no, mean, solar energy there, they're able to use it freely, essentially.
1: Okay, so that's just—so are they actually creating a force with the electricity, or are they just using like it to move an object to it's create force? It's
0: sending out essentially electromagnetic particles. Like particles are being sent out as ions, which creates thrust and pushes the satellite forward, backwards, or whatever maneuvers they need to do.
1: That's actually pretty neat. I didn't know. We, <laughs> I didn't know we could do that. That's-
0: yeah, so we don't necessarily need fossil fuels in order to create propulsion in space anymore. But the technology is still very primitive, so it's oh, yeah, very slow. It sounds slow. like it's something yeah. that
1: wouldn't work in an atmosphere. Any no, time. it, it <laughs> definitely
0: would not work in atmosphere. It only works in the vacuum space due to how little friction there is. So, going back to the blue origin, so what? Did, yeah, what did you mean by the green propulsion? Like, does it like zero emissions? Because that's not really.
2: I think they were, like I said, it didn't really go into much detail on his research, it, just a little description, but I can imagine it's just trying to eliminate uh, ways, trying to be a little bit more eco-friendly, because I know that has been a huge issue for years. Mm-hmm.
0: Um, and how many people can fit in the capsule? Six. six. Oh, dang. So that's much larger than the Dragon capsule that SpaceX is now using to resupply, uh, uh, resupply and send astronauts to the ISS.
2: It is actually very big. If you think of a first class flight, like your chairs can recline and everything, it's like a bed, basically. Well, I
1: think a big description of that could probably be because Piola's is designed for tourism and then yours is for resupply. So that could probably explain just the...
0: Yeah, true. They're both accomplishing jobs in different parts of the aerospace industry, like what like... Blue Origin's aiming towards space tourism and moon, and the moon, while SpaceX is more looking towards resupply, uh, reducing cargo costs, and colonizing Mars. Did you guys also hear about the gateway that NASA's creating? Uh, it's basically going to be a lunar outpost for future missions to test and experiment.
1: Oh, so like an actual place operated by people, or is this more of an automated system?
0: It's going to be like essentially a larger version of the ISS orbiting around the moon. Oh, okay. Yeah, so it's supposed to test the Orion spacecraft and eventually the asteroid redirect system. Yeah. NASA actually, in the next few years, I think in around 2022, will actually be trying to redirect asteroid orbits in order to test if we are if we as humans are capable of redirecting asteroids away from Earth in case one is heading towards us.
1: Ah, so they're thinking they can play the job of Jupiter now, huh?
0: Yeah, basically. Have you, if you guys ever seen the movie? I think it was called Armageddon. Have you guys ever seen that with uh, Bruce Willis? That it's not going to be where we plant nuclear bombs on the on the asteroid and explode into shards, but it's going to basically be sending heavy payloads on a rocket and shooting it into an asteroid in order to redirect it off its orbit.
2: Well, that's very interesting. I actually I haven't heard about that until now. Um, so <clears throat> I can only imagine like how expensive it's going to be to like keep that ongoing i know right now to keep the iss up there i think is what like a couple billion dollars every year
1: dang i didn't know it costed that much
2: oh yes it it costs a lot to keep it up in orbit they have to keep yeah but then
0: again it's also a uh, amalgamation and an agreement between multiple countries in order to set it up and keep it running
2: right yeah that's correct um and is it gonna? Do you know if it's gonna be the same countries at at this lunar outpost or?
0: I am not sure. I know that NASA is heading the project. I do not know as of yet. I didn't really see anything about other countries, but most likely Russia and China are probably gonna be like partners with us, testing and experimenting on new medical equipment, duration missions, health, and yeah, other I'm human sure. factors.
1: Oh, so we can just have a motion multinational party among the moon. It will will be neat just to see what type of experiments we can actually do in a lighter orbit, and if like, I don't know, if weightlessness will still be the same, because I guess you'd still be falling all the time, but wouldn't it be at a slower rate?
0: I mean, technically, there won't be weightlessness because one-sixth of the Earth's gravity is on the moon, so you won't feel weightlessness, but you'll be bouncing around
1: a lot. You know, like the ISS station where you're like, sort of feel weightless, because the reason your float is not due to lack of atmosphere, but because you're constantly falling around the Earth. Yeah,
0: it's in the ISS is more in microgravity. There's there's such a minute amount that doesn't factor into it, but it still has an effect on your body. While the moon is more natural gravity, but it's still not, it's not nearly enough as Earth. No, so you still have... I if it yeah, would yeah. be
1: like microgravity orbit, and if it would be like the same weightlessness, or if it would be like a different feeling among the space stations.
0: There they're most likely will be a different feeling, but we've never experienced it before, so it would be a scientific endeavor in order to see what happens to the human body when it goes into that type of environment.
1: Okay. Uh, I was going to, just a question out of curiosity, does someone remember about how long it takes to actually travel to the moon and back now?
0: I th- it's a few months. I don't have the exact number. But with this space station, we're actually supposed to be having astronauts like stay there for like missions at a time, kind of like how they do with the ISS now and testing new spacesuits, air revitalization, water recovery and management and a bunch of other things.
1: Yeah, because I think it was Blue Origin had a plan to get space travel down to a certain amount of days between the moon and back, but I can't really remember about how long it was.
0: I mean, now with, like, new composite materials being made, new rockets being made, especially with the vertical takeoff and landing rockets being able to be reused, I'm sure that we'll be able to narrow rocketry down to an exact science more than it already is now. All right. And I guess we don't really have an exact date for when the lunar outpost will be made, but it will be coming in the next few years.
1: Oh, okay. So it's one of those that's actually a closer project.
0: Yeah, exactly. Your thing about tests and the new plan. Oh. Yeah, that's what I was pointing to. Okay, okay. Yeah. we can. Yeah, yeah, yeah. Yeah, yeah, yeah. yeah, yeah, yeah. yeah, yeah.
2: yeah. Uh, okay, how do I like transition into this?
0: Uh, so, so now that we've been talking about aeronautics out in space, what down here on Earth has been advancing to help the space industry evolve?
2: Well, actually, glad that you mentioned that because just recently at the annual American Astronomical Society meeting over in Seattle, um, a group of scientists got together and actually announced that NASA's Transiting Exoplanet Survey Satellite, also just commonly known as TESS because it's easier, um, has actually discovered a small planet right outside our solar system. Well, I mean, I wouldn't say right outside ours. It's is it the, like
0: is it like an exoplanet that like in a faraway solar system like Alpha Centauri or Alpha Centauri
1: version two? Let's go.
2: <laughs> exactly. Uh, it's yeah. You no, know, it's actually just like that. Um, it's just a little exoplanet. It's named HD two one seven four nine B.
1: That's
0: a mouthful.
2: Very creative name. Well, I'm just
1: gonna remember that. I mean, if you don't remember <laughs> HD two one seven four nine. Out of the Seems like here. you're struggling yeah. there, Travis. <laughs> hey, hey, I definitely wasn't reading it off the
2: off the website. <laughs> what? No. No. Well, this planet um, it just orbits a a nearby dwarf star, um, and it's exactly 53 light years away from us. Um, so.
0: So is it like in the Goldilocks zone of the dwarf star? Because I know dwarf stars emit way less radiation than a normal like. Normal star like our star, it's not as big as a giant, but it's also not like a protostar,
2: right? And that's exactly what I was thinking. So, I actually researched that too. And the dwarf star, um, does orbit is actually a little bit bigger, so um, it does emit a little bit more. But, like, uh, yes, it is in the Goldilocks zone, like you said, so <clears throat> all right, so it is ex- livable, but right, but I mean, we never know. But what's interesting. Is how
0: they, um, how they like view the like how they ca- are able to figure out how it's gold like in the Goldilocks zone or how it's able to figure out the planet using like light deformation, or what we. Well, going to say? I
2: was I was gonna say like how it was interesting to see how they actually discovered this planet. That's what I was trying to say, yeah. <laughs> um, because wow. um, if you look back at their data, they so what they were looking at is was repeating um signals um and they noticed that there was this like signal that kept like appearing like this like light dips like it, momentary mm-hmm. dips in their data yeah, i think um, they're
0: able to actually figure out the composition of the atmosphere through that too which right is kind of crazy
2: but they noticed a pattern um Every thirty six days, the same dip would occur in their data, and so they looked more closely into it. and They were like, "Oh, it's a planet!" and that's how thirty six days exact is exactly how long it takes it um, to orbit the dwarf star.
0: That's so, a very fast year.
2: It very it really is compared <laughs> to three hundred sixty five.
1: Hey, I wonder I wonder if that's enough times for seasons to actually change so you can just kind of every couple of days.
0: It's just a snap freeze and a and a, and a uh, drought, snap freeze It drought. would
1: almost be as wild as the weather in Texas. Almost, almost. Almost. You'd be having birthdays way more often. Dude, I, <laughs> every 36 days I get my presents, it's worth it.
0: Well, that's actually pretty cool that we're able to figure out if there's an actual planet that is able to support life just by looking at it through a telescope or using scientific instruments.
1: My question is is this one farther than Alpha Centauri or closer?
0: I think it's farther. I Yeah, yeah it's definitely farther. It's I know Alpha Centauri is closer than 53 light years away um, oh, but man, that's still we can't travel
1: that's, that fast in our wildest dreams. Yeah, we
0: just need to invent the warp drive.
1: Ah, oh, well, obviously. It's that easy, guys. Come on, get on it. Yeah, <laughs>
0: Enterprise, here we go. But speaking of like new planets, the, in the, one second. the NASA's InSight lander landed on Mars in, a few months ago, and it's going to be a leap forward in studying Mars's seismic past. Um, it's able to investigate the seismic activity of Mars using the se- Seismic Experiment for Interior Structures, or SEAS, to gather tectonic data in this ancient volcanic area. On the red planet.
1: So we can finally just look at all the fault lines of the planet. And-
0: well, not necessarily the fault lines, but more like to see if it was tectonically active by looking at evidence as it drills into the—not into not the Earth, but the ground. Oh, okay,
1: so Mars is actually dormant right now? It doesn't, like, experience earthquakes, or—
0: No, it's been dormant for a while. It used to have a tectonic core and a, magne- and a magnetosphere, s- scientists believe, but— as of right now, obviously, because there's a little magne- magnetosphere and there's a little atmosphere on the planet, we believe that Mars has been dormant for, like, millennia.
1: I didn't actually know that could happen. I I, I sort of assumed fault lines were in just kind of movement of tectonic plates were just kind of there because of molten, but they I, I, I can stop that. Yeah, the
0: only movement on Mars that's really, like, alive is the constant uh, sublimation and deposition of essentially... Uh, hot ice or it's frozen CO2 on the poles that constantly evaporates and deposits uh, summer and winters.
2: So what exactly have have they made any recent um, research discoveries?
0: Um, as of right now they're still gathering data but they plan on discovering um, how warm the interior still is to see if they can get maybe geothermal energy from the planet if we land there or if we can raise plants in a warmer environment rather than having permafrost because you know plants can't really live in a frozen environment but um, they're still also, Launching two cube satellites to gather additional data of the surface, which are f- comically named Wally and Eva due to how they use fire extinguisher fluid as a thruster propellant.
1: Yeah, it's pretty neat. I mean, if it gets for use of propellant, might as well use uh, fire extinguishers. That's what comes to my mind first.
0: Yeah, but it's funny. Like they don't. U- <laughs> it's funny that they use fire extinguisher as a thruster because you think of thrusters as being actual fire, but this is actually something that kind of puts that out.
1: Hey, I mean, why not? Maybe they just saw the movie and got inspired. I mean, that's the exact that's a, opposite order.
2: I mean, it happens. You know?
0: yeah, equal and opposite reaction. That fire extinguisher fluid comes out fast. So, actually, it's kind of a. There's probably neat idea. just,
1: you know, some intern at the office ordered a couple too many. He's like, yo, guys, what if.
0: Or, or there's a few dizzy fanatics. What if. Hey,
1: <laughs> what if we use the fire extinguishers?
0: <laughs> hey, you know how we have rockets? Well, let's put it with foam. <laughs> <laughs> yeah no but it's actually really cool that this was able to land there it's almost as big as curiosity i mean it's a stationary lander so it's not going to be able to really move but it's still going to be incredible what discoveries we can get in the distant future we're able to find even bacterial life beyond our planet because as paula said before there are many exoplanets that have the ca- the capacity for life similar to earth so i wonder if we'll ever find bacterial life or even sentient life beyond our solar system
2: Right. And I actually totally agree kind of adding on to that um, back to what you said about the moon launch post. I think that's kind of the direction we will be heading in these next few years. More launch posts on like in different areas, you know, maybe like Mars or even colonization, you know, just getting like maybe even like food production up there.
1: Yeah, my whole, like, if as long as we're talking about just far future is eventually, like, you know, solar sail travel where they just have those huge panels that are quite literally just pushed by reflecting, like, the light. I mean, they've had that for
0: multiple space probes going, like, back to, like, New Horizons or even Voyager, I think, had solar probes or not really solar probes but solar sails in order to push and accelerate them.
1: Yeah, but I'm talking about I want those massive colony ships of the future sci-fi. I've been watching a lot of sci-fi and I want this to happen. I mean, obviously, colony
0: ships will have to be powered and essentially guided by way more advanced technology than we have today. So,
1: maybe in the future. Let me dream.
0: It is a far fetched dream. However, (laughs) we have gone stuff past the bounds of our solar system. I mean, Voyager 2, just recently, a few years ago, was able to go past the go into interstellar space. So if it took around 30, 40 years for Voyager to get out, how long do you think it will be before um, humans and man-powered ships will be able to leave the solar system?
1: I have no idea, but I don't expect it happening in our lifetime, even with just technology increasing at like a quadratic rate. I'm pretty sure it's going to have to be the next leap, like much after quantum computing and things like that, simply because of the mass amount of requirements it takes.
2: Right, and I agree with that, Travis, just because sending um, a space probe itself is a lot different than sending actual humans out into interstellar space. There's a lot of problems that can occur, but, you know, maybe it will happen one day.
0: Yeah, you'd have to account for the ship, the maintenance, the most importantly, food and water on the ship, because it would have to have a lot of water recyclers or stored water and potentially aquaponics like we see on the ISS, and... With that capability, we'd be able to if, ef- eventually explore past our solar system. But yeah, like Travis said, it's not going to happen anytime soon. Do you guys think that we'll ever find life on Mars, potentially?
1: I don't believe we'll find any on Mars, because at this point, they're talking about potential signs of life. And as we mentioned with the tectonic plates earlier, if there was any, I'm pretty sure it's gone by now.
0: Yeah, there's little to no magnetosphere on Mars, so we might find fossils potentially or ancient, like, remains of bacteria found in rocks like we do here on Earth. However, the possibility is still there.
2: Right. I don't doubt that we may end up finding, you know, fossils one day, but I think, you know, colonizing Mars, um, creating life on there is a little, it's kind of a stretch at this point, in my opinion.
0: Wait, do you mean by, like, the fact that there would be life right now or, like, colonizing Mars as humans?
2: Both, I guess. Because I think, I just don't think we can find or sustain life on Mars right now, you know?
0: Yeah, well, with current technology. But as technology, like, expands and becomes more advanced, we'll definitely have the capability to have long-distance travel.
2: Right, and I do believe that. But Mars itself is such a harsh environment to you know live in you know with all the unexpected dust storms the drastic weather changes i just don't think a human can like live up there
0: well that's why we have spacesuits and domes boom
1: the magical space dome
2: (laughs) the magical space dome
0: (laughs) no but like if you guys have ever seen the martian that's a pretty realistic i mean there are some far-fetched sci-fi concepts in there but it's a pretty realistic depiction of how humans might survive on mars
1: but yeah, no, just for a while it's going to be have to be pretty isolated environments just for space in general. Like, I think it was, uh, I can't remember if we've already talked about it in the podcast, but the uh, different lunar models that the NASA's already showing off?
0: No, I don't think we have.
1: Okay, I think it was... Uh, it was. I can't remember if it's a concept or if it's already been put into an idea. But they're actual little bases that NASA's gone. But like different concepts of what were the different actual like living spaces on the moon would look like if we put them there.
0: I think I've seen those before. They look like essentially not like tunnels that you connect together in order like to connect different habitats. Yeah,
1: all the different shapes we learned the math for in geometry just kind of shoved together.
2: Right, and that. That's- I'm glad that you said that because that just reminded me of a book that I read not too long ago. Um, I'm sure you guys all know, obviously, like we talked about The Martian. Well, the author of that book, Andy Weir, just published recently another book called Artemis, which is actually about colonizing the moon this time. And um, in there, he had like little diagrams or pictures of how like colonization would look like. And like you said, those magical space domes (laughs) were all over the place.
0: I mean, they're quite the articulate structure, so.
1: I mean, it's because the, you know, the infinitely expanding space looks like infinitely expanding opportunity. I can't wait for maybe mining operations, because as soon as you start harvesting just those, uh, I remember it was like this one story NASA was talking about, this one asteroid that just has about like a diamond the size of, like a couple cars just stacked together that's just flying around the asteroid belt. And I mean, if that's there, just maybe deposits of iron and different things like you. I don't know. I just want to see space mining operations.
0: I mean, that's (laughs) probably in the near future, because if you haven't heard, OSIRIS-REx, a NASA probe, was actually able to orbit around an asteroid called Bennu that was flying close to our solar or inside the uh, inner parts of the solar system. So if we keep advancing that technology, we'll definitely be able to mine asteroids.
1: Sweet.
0: Yeah, mining asteroids will help us eventually because there are some uh, rare earth metals that can be found on asteroids that are like rare earth metals here. So if we do start mining, we'll be able to greatly increase the capacity of our spacefaring abilities. All right, thank you so much for listening. It's been a blast talking about space exploration today. Join us next week when we talk about innovations in three D printing. See you next time. See ya.
2: Bye.